When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. Once again, I'm Eric Rivenis, and thanks for joining me. Well, I've got to say I've had a great couple of recent episodes, courtesy of our amazing listeners. Matt from Nova Scotia emailed me with a suggestion that I contact Bill or Rachel McCarthy James about their Man from the Train book, which I did, of course. I appreciate that so much, Matt. And another listener, Ron, forwarded me the article that my next guest wrote. Thank you, Ron. And you can email me as well with your favorite books, true crime history books, please, at erivenous at yahoo.com or just go to mostnotorious.com and hit the send me a wire link. I'm also excited to announce that I reached my 1000 rating goal on iTunes. Uh, again, thanks to everyone who, who left one for me. Great to know that you guys all have my back. Appreciate it as always. Now, let's move on to our interview. I'm joined now by Kim Brigaman, longtime reporter and history writer for Montana's Missoulian newspaper. His recent article is titled, Curious Find Casts Doubt on 1922 Execution. Thanks so much for joining me, and I'm so pleased that you're able to, to share with us this new information on an almost 100-year-old case. It's, it's a fun story. Is this a pretty well-known story for armchair historians in Montana? Uh, for a certain set, I think it is. Um, but really, it was, it was long past the general you know, public's memory. Um, the the main personalities are all long gone, and their families are unknown, at least to me. So, so let's jump right in. Nora Shea's murder. It happened in Missoula, 1921, 
what were the circumstances of her death? The incident in 1921 occurred in on the north side of Missoula. Jerry Shea was a railroad worker, and they lived, he and Mrs. Shea and their two young children lived um, right next to the tracks in North Missoula. Um, Mrs. Shea had um, previously had a run-in with Joe Vukovic, who was a Serbian who was also living in that neighborhood, and it appeared that they had an affair going. Um, on the day of the murder, on the evening of that murder, it was after dark, um, Mr. Shea testified that Mrs. Shea was walking down to the store, nearby store, corner grocery store, to get candy as the family was planning on taking a trip up the Bitterit, which is um, where both the Shays were from. Um, they, the report was that a 13-year-old boy saw Mrs. Shea and Joe Vukovic walking together toward the store along North First Street in Missoula, and they, uh, and then they appeared to get in an argument, according to this 13-year-old. I think he was a paper boy at the time. The, uh, then a shot rang out as happens and, uh, Mrs. Shea was left dying on the corner of Rose Avenue and First Street. Um, reports, witnesses said they saw Joe Vukovic leaving after that and, um, and he went on the lam for four or five days before he was finally caught. So he he immediately appeared guilty, um, but that was cast in doubt uh, at the trial, at the subsequent trial, and also at uh, in later years by this confession board that that uh, Cliff Iverson, who lives in Missoula now and has most of his life, um, produced a few weeks ago. So there had been some history between Joe Vukovic and Mrs. Shea. Your article offers some details about their relationship. The the most glaring incident was happened just a few weeks earlier. The murder was on February 12, 1921, and um, on January 25th, um, the neighbors called the police because there was an appear, uh, a disturbance at the Shea house and, um, Joe Vukovic was seen leaving with her two young children who were two and a half and five years old, carrying them out to the street. Um, when Mrs. Shea protested, they, he turned around and put the children down apparently and slapped her or or did something to bloody her nose. Then he left with a an accomplice, so to speak, in a car at that time. So the police at that at that um incident 
seemed to indicate that there was something, a relationship going on that uh, between Joe and Nora Shea um, that Jerry Shea was aware of, but was seemed to be intimidated by Joe Vukovic and uh, wasn't wasn't doing anything about it. It was kind of a, a weird love triangle. He lived close by and seemed to be over there a lot, right? Correct, yeah. And and uh, the other entanglement that we'll never know is they seem to both be involved in bootlegging. Um, it was, you know, the height of prohibition, so to speak, in early, early in the height of prohibition. And um, Joe had already been arrested for bootlegging. And in fact, in, in just the week before the murder and, and was released. So there was, there was that, um, you know, maze that I, I can't circumnavigate with all, all the connections. He was already kind of a well-known character with a criminal background, uh, when he was arrested. Yes. Yes, the neighbors knew him as Joe Vines, and um, initial reports called him Joe Vines, Joe Rukovich. The headline the day after the murder called him Joe Vakalovich, and so so there was all all kinds of (laughs) uh, pseudonyms, I guess, uh, involved there. But I I I keep uh, with Joe Vukovich, which which was the closest to what he came to be re- referred to in the papers. He's not caught right away though. Yeah. He, it's interesting. He went, he went, he fled West out of Missoula. Um, the first major drainage out of Missoula to the West is Grant Creek. And he knocked on the door in the, the early morning hours after that evening murder and uh, knocked on the door of a rancher, E.C. Henry, who um, he told that the law was after, and this time I'm probably going to hang. And when Henry asked him why he said that, he answered, because they got me for bootlegging again. He never said anything about a murder. Um, After he stayed... Um, for an, uh, part of that day at the Henry Ranch, um, Mr. Henry went to town to get some food or something and found out when he came back, he found that Joe had left and stolen some clothes and some food. Joe then apparently, or as he had reported after he was caught, he took off east of Missoula out toward um well, up, up the Clark Fork River drainage, as it were, and um, it wasn't until uh, February 16th, so four days after the murder, that he was seen limping along hungry on the railroad tracks 35 miles east of Missoula, and uh, a train crew reported him, and the Missoula sheriff deputy went out and... Uh, and caught him and brought him, brought him back to Missoula. He was not only having a relationship with her, but they were planning to run away together, right? 
That that came out at the trial. That, okay. Yes. Well, at least that's what the def- the defender was um, portraying. The scenario is that is that uh, Mrs. Shea was Mr. Or Joe had convinced Mrs. Shea to bring the children to back to Serbia, where he was from, and uh, run away from her husband. But the fact that he ran right after the murder didn't exactly help his case. <laughs> exactly. When he went on the lam and, you know, the uh, the headline again that I referred to in the next morning's paper just a few few hours, actually, after the, the murder, the lead headline is, Mrs. Jerry Shea is murdered by Joe Vaklovich. And the subhead says that talk of a lynching is heard. So obviously he was he was considered the prime suspect right off the bat because of because he disappeared and because of his past history with with uh, of violence with Mrs. Shea and actually other women. Oh, okay. So he had a, a record of, of violence towards women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, in in the years leading up to this. He had been a laborer up up in the Bitterroot, which is south of Missoula, and uh, supposedly was run out of two towns up there for um, affairs with with married women that ended violently when he when he uh, struck them or assaulted them. It's such a strange statement when he said that he was worried about getting executed for bootlegging. That wasn't a, a capital crime in Montana. Not there or anywhere else, I, I don't think. Correct. Correct. And and so that, all of that, which came out, um, you know, in the days following the incident, but then also was revisited in the trial the next month, um, all of that um, did Joe no no good, excuse me, uh, no good in his defense. So I'd love to ask you about the trial, if you don't mind. You've already talked a little bit about the, the defense strategy. They basically tried to direct the blame at her husband, right? Well, they tried two two strategies. One was to um, try to pin it on suicide, that Mrs. Shea was distraught. Um, that, um, you know, that, that had some merit in itself, but, um, the, I think the main strategy was to try to pin it on Jerry Shea and, um, he, he, you know, they, when he was asked by the defense attorney, did you shoot your wife? He flat out said, no. He said he had ejected Vukovic from his home back in January 25th when he assaulted Mrs. Shea. Um, he said he he denied that he had received $1,500. He being Jerry Shea denied at trial that he'd received $1,500 from Vukovic. And he also denied that he knew that Mrs. Shea took money belonging to Vukovic out of the bank on the day of the shooting. And so um, that was when he was asked, Jerry Shea was asked, 
that didn't you know about a proposition between your wife and Vukovic where she would get a divorce and marry him and go back to Serbia with him? And Jerry Shea said no. And then he was asked, didn't you go to see about a divorce from your wife? Jerry answered no. And he answered no to, um, didn't your wife on several occasions threaten to shoot herself? That was the motive that Jerry Shea would have had to, uh, to kill her. The last thing that they asked Mr. Shea on the stand was, did, didn't your wife on several occasions threaten to shoot herself? And he answered again, no. So he was, um, they were trying to cast the guilt or suspicion on Jerry Shea um, because there was obviously some evidence that he and his wife were on the outs and uh, and that Joe Vukovic would not have killed her because she was going to run away with him. Interesting. So how how long did the trial last, and how long did it take for the jury to reach a verdict? Yeah, um, it it lasted. Uh, I think it was a, over a, a span of ten days. There were you know weekends when they didn't trial, so it was a, a long trial. But it took the jury of twelve men um, only three hours to come to a verdict not only of guilty, but that he should be sentenced to death. Did Montana have a death row at that time? There, yes, there was, there were um, several people who had recently been, um, actually their sentences had been commuted by the sitting governor and, um, but had been sentenced to death. So yes, I assume there was there were men on death row in prison at that time. How long was it between the verdict and the sentence and the sentence to the execution? The sentence occurred apparently right that day uh, at the end of the trial in late March. He was sentenced originally to die in May of 1921 because of the subsequent appeals um it didn't happen the actual execution didn't happen till february of 1922 um a year and 5 days after the murder could you describe the execution yeah joe was um by that time he was quite a celebrity in fact they had um they had rousted out um, some 5,000 signatures from Missoula County and surrounding areas to petition Governor Joseph Dixon to commute his sentence, as he had done uh, recently, just a couple of others. And so um, Joe maintained his innocence to the end, and he... Um, he actually wrote a letter on the night before the hanging occurred at six o'clock in the morning on February 17th on the day leading up to it. Um, he wrote a letter that the, uh, the Missoulian newspaper published the, the day of the hanging 
that basically thanked all of those who had um, had petitioned for his life, and then it also said that they're hanging the wrong guy. And even as they slipped the noose on on him in the jail yard behind the Missoula jail, the the account said Sheriff Cole adjusted the noose under Bukovic's ear and asked, have you anything to say, Joe? And Joe swallowed, then he spoke clearly. I have this to say that I pray to God and Jesus Christ that they take the one who got me into this and take him and punish him worse than I get punished this morning. I hope Christ burns him in the fire. Of course, I am losing my life as innocent as any man that ever was hung. And that is all I have to say. It, it, it is instrumental or it is instructive to note that he did not testify on his own behalf at the trial. And there were various reasons put forward for that, but never was quite sure um, why his defense attorney did not put him on the stand at the trial. Do you think that would have helped his case? Um, I can't outguess the defense attorney, who seems competent from all I've read. Um, There must have been something else there that he was afraid that Joe would be pinned down to say. And so there, there could well have been some kind of collusion even between Joe and Jerry um, to to murder Mrs. Shea. You know, at least open all that kind of speculation. Interesting. So there is definitely a chance, in your opinion, that Jerry Shea killed his wife. Yes, I do. I do think so. Because for one thing, he was on the scene while she lay there in a pool of blood, she'd been shot in the head. Um, he was there quickly. And one of the, uh, the strange things that happened at that, that time was, um, and this was in the account in the papers the next day, he, um, he put a knee, he was kneeling beside her with one knee on her. And uh, when somebody said, what are you doing? All he replied was, she is my wife. And they left that incident hanging, which seems really strange. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She was unconscious, and and she actually was taken to the hospital shortly thereafter and died at the hospital, never never regaining consciousness. So, um, yeah, that was a strange... Strange incident that really cast questions in my own mind when I read it about why Jerry Shea would have done that. That makes me think of a murder that happened in Minneapolis at the turn of the 20th century where a man had taken his wife for a walk along a steep river bluff and pushed her over. When he climbed down and realized she was still alive, he he rushed to her side grabbed her arms and started violently shaking her, telling her to stay alive, 
come back to me, come back to me. <laughs> it's yep. very similar. Yep. That's and, and who knows what that was all about other than, you know, just what, what they they said it was. Um you you had asked about details of the hanging and I think we should mention how that how that went down. Um I got a lot of this information from um a book uh, that a guy named Ted Donovan wrote, which chronicles all the hangings and tells their stories in Montana, and uh, a very valuable book. But it was he characterized that murder or that hanging as he was the last man in Montana to be hanged on a jerk type gallows, which consisted of instead of a drop through a trap door um they put a, a 320 pound weight on the other end of the rope hang it hung it over over the gallows and uh, then dropped the rope and hold the 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 uh, man sentenced to die <laughs> uh was hopefully to break his neck immediately um, it took him ten and a half minutes, so there was that didn't work as as uh, quickly and expeditiously as it was planned. <laughs> Jerry was characterized by the time he died as a 140 pound man, and so the 320 pound weight would have would have been pretty devastating. It seems like so. And there were a lot of people who showed up to watch the hanging. It was quite a spectacle. Yeah, and and in that way, it lives on in Missoula history because the invitations were sent out to 200 people, and a lot of those invitations, or some of them at least, are still around in collections and museums and so forth in Missoula. Um, they, they built a stockade around the back of the jail, a 10-foot-high stockade, um, and and they were uh, they were afraid of some disturbances, some violence, some protests, um, because and that's why they built the stockade. Um, so be- beyond the 200 witnesses that were invited, um, the story goes that there were women and well men and children who were on rooftops and who climbed trees that morning to see the. To see the event, so so I, I saw one estimate that maybe a thousand, one estimate that maybe a thousand people um, saw Jared, saw Joe Vukovich die. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts. 
Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or would, call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? What was the the population of of Missoula at that time, approximately? Ooh, you got me. Yeah, I I was... I I do know, you know, when they they said he got... There were 5,000 petitions or signatures on petition to, to spare his life. That equaled... Um, roughly a fourth of the Missoula County population at the time in in the early 1920s. I would have to check that figure, but that sticks in my mind that there were perhaps in the county itself 20,000 to 25,000 people. So if you don't mind, let's go to this piece of evidence you wrote about. This board, the board that was found by Cliff Iverson, could you describe it for us? Well, the curious thing about it is that anyone would take the time to write. It's not a very big board. It's it's probably, I think, I'm guessing 16 inches long and five inches wide. Um, On one side is a lot of the basic details of the murder of Joe Rukovich's flight and then of the, you know, the date of the hanging. Um, then on the backside, it says several years later or a few years later, um, Mrs. Shea's husband confessed to killing her on his deathbed. And 
that's all it said. And so it, we, we had to do a little research and to find out when he died. And, uh, he didn't die until 1952. Um, so that, that stirred the imagination, I guess. <laughs> and, and it certainly caught Cliff Iverson's eye when he, when he found the board, uh, in the house that his father had moved from, from Missoula out east of Missoula, uh, back in 1970. So do you think the person who wrote this had witnessed this confession firsthand? Were they there at his deathbed? Well, you know, I was hoping to pin that down. I was hoping that maybe it was it was his daughter, Jerry Shea's daughter, whom he was visiting in Miles City, clear across the state, 500 miles away, when he died. But Cliff is pretty sure that the writing is his own father's and he has no known connection between his father and Jerry Shea, even though they both lived in, in Western Montana. Um, well, since Tony Iverson arrived, um, from Norway in 1928 until Jerry Shea died in 1952. So, it would have been nice to find that connection, but I, I could not find it. Cliff Iverson is, is pretty sure that the handwriting is his father's then. Yeah, he, he actually brought out, showed me some some examples of his father's writing. And um, I, I'm not an analyst. There's similarities, um, but... Still, we don't have the explanation of why his father would have written that in the first place. Um, and Cliff's speculation and the family's speculation is that he saw the story in old newspapers that were used for insulation on this house that he had moved from Missoula. It was an old house and, uh, and for some reason wrote it down at that point. I, that seems unlikely to me because I could not find any newspapers anywhere that mentioned a confession 30 years later. I wonder why he wrote it on a board and not a piece of paper. That's certainly up for speculation. It sounded like he would want to make it more permanent or, you know, more permanent than a piece of paper. Um, he might have, it might've been the only thing handy if it was, um, Cliff found it in the garage of the house and maybe it was the handiest thing he had to write. It was written in what appears to be Carpenter's pencil and Tony R. Iverson was a millwright at the Bonner, uh, lumber mill. And so Cliff speculates that that was the pencil that he just grabbed out of his pocket that millwrights always carry and uh, and wrote it there. Again, it's just uh, it it's that seems nebulous, <laughs> and you know it would not be evidence that could anybody would would uh, would be able to use. For instance, if there was a movement to 
Harden, Joe Vukovic, all these years later. Another odd thing to me, um, wouldn't someone who had learned of a murder confession go straight to the police instead of writing it on a board and not telling anyone? Or maybe they did, but the police brushed it off. I guess it's really hard to say, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I mean, the circumstances of the confession would be great to know. Um, he was at his daughter's home. The daughter that was had turned two and a half the day of the murder when her mother was killed. She by then she was by 1952 she was married, living in Miles City. The other daughter, who had been five at the on the at the time of the murder, was married and living in Alaska. And Jerry, in early earlier in 1952, was in and out of the Missoula Hospital. It wasn't, I, I don't know what it was for, but he was obviously sick. Um, the older daughter from Alaska was noted in the paper, actually, that she was down to visit her father in, in Stevensville, is where he was living. And um, that was in July, just after he got out of the hospital for the last time. And then he died in August, about five weeks later, in Miles City, 500 miles away. So whether he wanted, before he died, to get this off his chest to his daughters, or whether he... Um, wanted, he called in somebody in authority, somebody official to make that confession. Um, that, again, that's, that's a mystery and, um, the strand will, will probably disappear into history if, um, if it was just a deathbed confession to his daughter or daughters. If there's some record out there of a confession, um, in Custer County, where Miles City is, um, the sheriff that I talked to of Custer County could find no no record of it in the coroner's reports. I know that this is all just complete speculation and us just guessing about this, but my goodness, if this was a real confession that was made to his daughters, I guess he would be clearing his conscience, but also risking eternal hatred from his daughters, who I assume would resent him for it, right? I, I would think so. You never know. I, I don't know what relationship he had with his daughters. He obvious he never, according to his obituary, it appears he never got remarried. And so whether he raised those two daughters himself, um, you know, and then... Um, had some kind of what, whatever kind of relationship he had with them as a loving father, or maybe as as an estranged father. In the end, I I, I really don't know. So yes, there probably would have been some some bitterness, I would think, of those girls who grew up without a mother. Again, it's impossible to get into the head of Jerry Shea, of course, but if he was the killer. Would a normal man, if he was pushed to that kind of rage, kill his wife and not his wife's lover? Sure. That, that, that's where things get snarled because 
like I say, I think they were both involved in this in this bootlegging uh, ring, whether it was together or in competition. And then you add in, you know, the love triangle aspect of it. Um, and the fact that Jerry was apparently intimidated by Joe Vukovic, who seemed to have a short temper and, uh, uh you, yeah, you throw in all that in the mix, how it happened to be that Mrs. Shea was the one who died, um, is, is interesting, I guess. So does the area where the murder happened, does it still look the way it did in 1921? I think so. Um, there's obviously more modern buildings in the area. Actually, though, it is right across from some what appeared to be um, railroad warehouses, brick, you know, two-story type warehouses that now have modern businesses in them. And uh, so those still stand along the railroad between First Street and and the railroad. Um and and the house, one of the houses on the northwest corner of of the Rose Avenue, what was Rose Avenue and North First Street, looks to me like it could easily have been standing back then. So other than all the power lines and the fire hydrants and the <laughs> and the garbage dumpsters that are in that little area. It, it could look very similar, I would think, especially this time of year. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. So, so the death penalty still exists in Montana, right? Is it is it often used? That um, it is not used often. There are two men on death row, as I understand it, right now. Um, the the hanging of Joe Vukovic was, I believe. Maybe the, I believe there were maybe 14 other hangings in various counties in Missoula or in, in Montana after that. The last one was back in Missoula in the same jailhouse, um, in, during, it was, um, during World War II in 1943 where a confessed murder was hanged. And that one in 1943 was the last hanging, legal hanging in Montana. Um, now, um, with the new state constitution from 1972, et cetera, where the death penalty is, is legal, um, is legal again, I guess. The, uh, the execution means of choice is lethal injection, and that has been challenged because of uh, you know, for humanitarian reasons as well. Although I would, I will say that we are, we are far in a way, far from being the most, uh, I guess, uh, well, compared to our, our population, we, we don't have very many men on death row or executions. Uh, I think there have been three or four since, uh, 1996. So in the last 20 some years, we've had three executions. So, just personally, would would you rank this as one of the most infamous murders in Montana history? 
I would not, no. Um, and I refer to this this book that Tom Donovan wrote, Hanging Around the Big Sky. I mean, it's two inches thick. <laughs> and and it covers back in the in the eighteen sixties when before there was even a Montana or just shortly thereafter, um the vigilantes of Montana or probably by far and away the most famous executioners of bad guys, mostly without a trial. Um, and even in Missoula County, historically speaking, besides the last man to hang in 1943 in Montana was in Missoula. In the 1890, December of 1890, they um, hanged in the Missoula courtyard uh, four Native Americans, two of them Ponderé Indians and two of them Kootenai Indians for three different depredations. They just chose to do it all at once. And that was quite a scene. (laughs) What would you say off the top of your head is the most sensational crime in the history of your state? The one that drew the most press, the one that people in Montana would, would still know today? Um, well, we had we had the Unabomber, <laughs> Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> sure. Um, that didn't result in the death sentence. Um, that was in 1996 in Lincoln, uh, 80 miles west of or east of Missoula. Um, the probably the most sen- sensational over the years was one of the first ones, which has had books written about it. Um, the hanging of Sheriff. Henry Plummer um, in in Bannock in a gold camp in 1864, um, where he was the sheriff who was apparently um, the head of a the road agent gang that was robbing and and murdering miners, and so he was kind of the suave sheriff. Um, smooth talker who no one could believe would be doing these heinous crimes. Well, they caught the vigilantes formed a month before they caught up to him in in Bannock and hung him on the gallows uh, outside of the gallows that he built for another execution outside of Bannock. Um, every other year, um, they reenact that the hanging of Sheriff Plummer in Bannock, which is now a state park. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> I've, I've seen it a couple of times and it's, it's, uh, very lifelike, very, uh, realistic, very authentic and well done in, on a January Saturday is when they usually have it. So, yeah, I, uh, how do they stage the hanging? Well, they've got it figured out. The, there's there's a gallows up the gulch from downtown Bannock, which is a, essentially a ghost town. And uh, they he's he's up, they hanged two other guys with Sheriff Plummer, so they have characters reenacting that, and um, they march them with the onlookers, with spectators. They they. Um, catch them in the saloon or in the in the house in town and the whole procession follows them up to up the gulch to the 
to the gallows. And uh, so they, uh, they, there's some kind of harness, you know. Ah, um, interesting. Apparatus that they use, but they do it, they do it very, very well. And, uh, you know, slip the hoods over their heads and the, the widows, the widows to be are, you know, make a scene and so on and so forth. So they they do that every other year because our legislature every other year and the death penalty is always a uh, is always an issue at the at the legislature as it is currently right now. They do it in the year the Januarys that the legislature does not meet. I think to avoid any kind of political, um, you know, pushback. <laughs> well, on the outside chance that maybe there are some listeners out there who might know something more about the case or might be willing to help do some research on it, how can they contact you? Yeah, I think the best way would be just by Gmail. Okay. Um, that way I won't lose it. And, uh, so, and I, I think Eric, I think I gave you a different email the other day that, and maybe I, I, I will give you, I'll give you my Gmail. <laughs> so, um, if, if they want to send it to my Gmail, which is unfortunately my name spelled out, um, Kim Brigaman, the number two, at gmail.com. So it's K-I-M-B-R-I-G-G-E-M-A-N number two at gmail.com. I'd love, I'd love to hear from anybody. <laughs> Excellent. And I will share your article on my most notorious Facebook page. If anyone wants to see some photos, read what you wrote, they can find it there. Thank you so much. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to keep keep the story alive. I don't get these opportunities very often as a newspaper guy. <laughs> Again, my guest has been Kim Brigaman, reporter and history writer for Montana's Missoulian newspaper. His article is called Curious Find Casts Doubt on 1922 Execution. This has been another episode of The Most Notorious Podcast. Broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.